Section 26 of Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books, edited by Charles W. Eliot. William Wordsworth, Prefaces to Various Volumes of Poems, Appendix to Lyrical Ballads, Essay Supplementary to Preface. Prefaces to Various Volumes of Poems. Footnote. William Wordsworth, 1770-1830, probably the greatest of the poets of the Romantic movement in England, was also foremost in the critical defense of that movement. The prefaces and essays printed here form a kind of manifesto of the reaction from the poetical traditions of the eighteenth century, and contain besides some of the soundest theorizing on the nature of poetry to be found in English. They afford an interesting comparison with the parallel protest in Victor Hugo's preface to Cromwell, to be found later in the volume. End footnote. Advertisement to Lyrical Ballads, 1798. It is the honorable characteristic of poetry that its materials are to be found in every subject which can interest the human mind. The evidence of this fact is to be sought, not in the writings of critics, but in those of poets themselves. The majority of the following poems are to be considered as experiments. They were written chiefly with a view to ascertain how far the language of conversation in the middle and lower classes of society is adapted to the purposes of poetic pleasure. Readers accustomed to the gaudiness and inane phraseology of many modern writers, if they persist in reading this book to its conclusion, will perhaps frequently have to struggle with feelings of strangeness and awkwardness. They will look round for poetry, and will be induced to inquire by what species of courtesy these attempts can be permitted to assume that title." it is desirable that such readers, for their own sakes, should not suffer the solitary word poetry, a word of very disputed meaning, to stand in the way of their gratification, but that, while they are perusing this book, they should ask themselves if it contains a natural delineation of human passions, human characters, and human incidents, and if the answer be favorable to the author's wishes, that they should consent to be pleased in spite of that most dreadful enemy to our pleasures, our own pre-established codes of decision. Readers of superior judgment may disapprove of the style in which many of these pieces are executed. It must be expected that many lines and phrases will not exactly suit their taste." it will perhaps appear to them that wishing to avoid the prevalent fault of the day the author has sometimes descended too low and that many of his expressions are too familiar and not of sufficient dignity it is apprehended that the more conversant the reader is with our elder writers and with those in modern times who have been the most successful in painting manners and passions the fewer complaints of this kind will he have to make an accurate taste in poetry, and in all the other arts, Sir Joshua Reynolds has observed, is an acquired talent, which can only be produced by severe thought, and a long-continued intercourse with the best models of composition. 
this is mentioned not with so ridiculous a purpose as to prevent the most inexperienced reader from judging for himself but merely to temper the rashness of decision and to suggest that if poetry be a subject on which much time has not been bestowed the judgment may be erroneous and that in many cases it necessarily will be so the tale of goody blake and harry gill is founded on a well-authenticated fact which happened in warwickshire of the other poems in the collection it may be proper to say that they are either absolute inventions of the author or facts which took place within his personal observation or that of his friends the poem of the thorn as the reader will soon discover is not supposed to be spoken in the author's own person the character of the loquacious narrator will sufficiently show itself in the course of the story the rhyme of the ancient mariner was professedly written in imitation of the style as well as of the spirit of the elder poets but with a few exceptions the author believes that the language adopted in it has been equally intelligible for these three last centuries the lines entitled expostulation and reply and those which follow arose out of a conversation with a friend who was somewhat unreasonably attached to modern books of moral philosophy. Preface to Lyrical Ballads, 1800 The first volume of these poems has already been submitted to general perusal. It was published as an experiment, which I hoped might be of some use to ascertain how far, by fitting to metrical arrangement a selection of the real language of men in a state of vivid sensation, that sort of pleasure and that quantity of pleasure may be imparted, which a poet may rationally endeavour to impart. I had formed no very inaccurate estimate of the probable effect of those poems. I flattered myself that they who should be pleased with them would read them with more than common pleasure, and on the other hand I was well aware that by those who should dislike them they would be read with more than common dislike. The result has differed from my expectation in this only, that a greater number have been pleased than I ventured to hope I should please. Several of my friends are anxious for the success of these poems, from a belief that, if the views with which they are composed were indeed realized, a class of poetry would be produced, well adapted to interest mankind permanently, and not unimportant in the quality and in the multiplicity of its moral relations, and on this account they have advised me to prefix a systematic defense of the theory upon which the poems were written. But I was unwilling to undertake the task, knowing that on this occasion the reader would look coldly upon my arguments, since I might be suspected of having been principally influenced by the selfish and foolish hope of reasoning him into an approbation of these particular poems, and I was still more unwilling to undertake the task, because, adequately to display the opinions, and fully to enforce the arguments, would require a space wholly disproportionate to a preface for to treat the subject with the clearness and coherence of which it is susceptible it would be necessary to give a full account of the present state of the public taste in this country and to determine how far this taste is healthy or depraved which again could not be determined without pointing out in what manner language and the human mind act and react on each other 
and without retracing the revolutions, not of literature alone, but likewise of society itself. I have therefore altogether declined to enter regularly upon this defence, yet I am sensible that there would be something like impropriety in abruptly obtruding upon the public, without a few words of introduction, poems so materially different from those upon which general approbation is at present bestowed. It is supposed that by the act of writing in verse an author makes a formal engagement that he will gratify certain known habits of association, that he not only thus apprises the reader that certain classes of ideas and expressions will be found in his book, but that others will be carefully excluded. This exponent or symbol held forth by metrical language must in different eras of literature have excited very different expectations. For example, in the age of Catullus, Terence, and Lucretius, and that of Statius or Claudian, and in our own country, in the age of Shakespeare and Beaumont and Fletcher, and that of Dunn and Cowley or Dryden or Pope. I will not take upon me to determine the exact import of the promise which, by the act of writing in verse, an author in the present day makes to his reader, but it will undoubtedly appear to many persons that I have not fulfilled the terms of an engagement thus voluntarily contracted. I hope, therefore, the reader will not censure me for attempting to state what I have proposed to myself to perform, and also, as far as the limits of a preface will permit, to explain some of the chief reasons which have determined me in the choice of my purpose, that at least he may be spared any unpleasant feeling of disappointment, and that I myself may be protected from one of the most dishonorable accusations which can be brought against an author, namely that of an indolence which prevents him from endeavouring to ascertain what is his duty, or when his duty is ascertained prevents him from performing it. The principal object, then, proposed in these poems was to choose incidents and situations from common life, and to relate or describe them throughout as far as was possible in a selection of language really used by men, and at the same time to throw over them a certain colouring of imagination, whereby ordinary things should be presented to the mind in an unusual aspect, and further, and above all, to make these incidents and situations interesting by tracing in them, truly though not ostentatiously, the primary laws of our nature, chiefly, as far as regards the manner in which we associate ideas in a state of excitement. Humble and rustic life was generally chosen, because in that condition the essential passions of the heart find a better soil in which they can attain their maturity, are less under restraint, and speak in a plainer and more emphatic language because in that condition of life our elementary feelings coexist in a state of greater simplicity, and consequently may be more accurately contemplated and more forcibly communicated, because the manners of rural life germinate from those elementary feelings, and from the necessary character of rural occupations, are more easily comprehended, and are more durable." and lastly, because in that condition the passions of men are incorporated with the beautiful and permanent forms of nature. The language, too, of these men has been adopted, 
purified indeed from what appear to be its real defects from all lasting and rational causes of dislike or disgust because such men hourly communicate with the best objects from which the best part of language is originally derived and because from their rank in society and the sameness and narrow circle of their intercourse being less under the influence of social vanity they convey their feelings and notions in simple and unelaborated expressions accordingly such a language arising out of repeated experience and regular feelings is a more permanent and a far more philosophical language than that which is frequently substituted for it by poets who think that they are conferring honour upon themselves and their art in proportion as they separate themselves from the sympathies of men and indulge in arbitrary and capricious habits of expression in order to furnish food for fickle tastes and fickle appetites of their own creation footnote it is worth while here to observe that the affecting parts of chaucer are almost always expressed in language pure and universally intelligible even to this day and footnote i cannot however be insensible to the present outcry against the triviality and meanness both of thought and language which some of my contemporaries have occasionally introduced into their metrical compositions and i acknowledge that this defect where it exists is more dishonourable to the writer's own character than false refinement or arbitrary innovation though i should contend at the same time that it is far less pernicious in the sum of its consequences from such verses the poems in these volumes will be found distinguished at least by one mark of difference that each of them has a worthy purpose not that i always began to write with a distinct purpose formerly conceived but habits of meditation have i trust so prompted and regulated my feelings that my descriptions of such objects as strongly excite those feelings will be found to carry along with them a purpose if this opinion be erroneous i can have little right to the name of a poet for all good poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings and though this be true poems to which any value can be attached were never produced on any variety of subjects but by a man who being possessed of more than usual organic sensibility had also thought long and deeply for our continued influxes of feeling are modified and directed by our thoughts which are indeed the representatives of all our past feelings and as by contemplating the relation of these general representatives to each other we discover what is really important to men so by the repetition and continuance of this act our feelings will be connected with important subjects till at length if we be originally possessed of much sensibility such habits of mind will be produced that by obeying blindly and mechanically the impulses of those habits we shall describe objects and utter sentiments of such a nature and in such connection with each other that the understanding of the reader must necessarily be in some degree enlightened and his affections strengthened and purified it has been said that each of these poems has a purpose another circumstance must be mentioned which distinguishes these poems from the popular poetry of the day it is this 
that the feeling therein developed gives importance to the action and situation, and not the action and situation to the feeling. A sense of false modesty shall not prevent me from asserting that the reader's attention is pointed to this mark of distinction far less for the sake of these particular poems than from the general importance of the subject. The subject is indeed important, for the human mind is capable of being excited without the application of gross and violent stimulants, and he must have a very faint perception of its beauty and dignity who does not know this, and who does not further know that one being is elevated above another in proportion as he possesses this capability. It has therefore appeared to me that to endeavour to produce or enlarge this capability is one of the best services in which, at any period, a writer can be engaged. But this service, excellent at all times, is especially so at the present day. For a multitude of causes, unknown to former times, are now acting with a combined force to blunt the discriminating powers of the mind, and, unfitting it for all voluntary exertion, to reduce it to a state of almost savage torpor. The most effective of these causes are the great national events which are daily taking place, and the increasing accumulation of men in cities, where the uniformity of their occupations produces a craving for extraordinary incident, which the rapid communication of intelligence hourly gratifies. To this tendency of life and manners the literature and theatrical exhibitions of the country have conformed themselves. The invaluable works of our elder writers, I had almost said the works of Shakespeare and Milton, are driven into neglect by frantic novels, sickly and stupid German tragedies, and deluges of idle and extravagant stories in verse. When I think upon this degrading thirst after outrageous stimulation, I am almost ashamed to have spoken of the feeble endeavour made in these volumes to counteract it, and, reflecting upon the magnitude of the general evil, I should be oppressed with no dishonourable melancholy, had I not a deep impression of certain inherent and indestructible qualities of the human mind, and likewise of certain powers in the great and permanent objects that act upon it, which are equally inherent and indestructible, and were there not added to this impression a belief that the time is approaching when the evil will be systematically opposed by men of greater powers and with far more distinguished success. Having dwelt thus long on the subjects and aim of these poems, I shall request the reader's permission to apprise him of a few circumstances relating to their style, in order, among other reasons, that he may not censure me for not having performed what I never attempted. The reader will find that personifications of abstract ideas rarely occur in these volumes, and are utterly rejected as an ordinary device to elevate the style and raise it above prose. My purpose was to imitate, and as far as possible, to adopt the very language of men and assuredly such personifications do not make any natural or regular part of that language. They are indeed a figure of speech occasionally prompted by passion, and I have made use of them as such, 
but have endeavoured utterly to reject them as a mechanical device of style, or as a family language which writers in metre seem to lay claim to by prescription. I have wished to keep the reader in the company of flesh and blood, persuaded that by so doing I shall interest him. Others who pursue a different track will interest him likewise. I do not interfere with their claim, but wish to prefer a claim of my own. There will also be found in these volumes little of what is usually called poetic diction. As much pains has been taken to avoid it as is ordinarily taken to produce it. This has been done for the reason already alleged, to bring my language near to the language of men, and further, because the pleasure which I have proposed to myself to impart is of a kind very different from that which is supposed by many persons to be the proper object of poetry. Without being culpably particular, I do not know how to give my reader a more exact notion of the style in which it is my wish and intention to write, than by informing him that I have at all times endeavoured to look steadily at my subject. Consequently, there is, I hope, in these poems little falsehood of description, and my ideas are expressed in language fitted to their respective importance. Something must have been gained by this practice, as it is friendly to one property of all good poetry, namely good sense. But it has necessarily cut me off from a large portion of phrases and figures of speech, which from father to son have long been regarded as the common inheritance of poets. I have also thought it expedient to restrict myself still further, having abstained from the use of many expressions, in themselves proper and beautiful, but which have been foolishly repeated by bad poets, till such feelings of disgust are connected with them, as it is scarcely possible by any art of association to overpower. If in a poem there should be found a series of lines, or even a single line, in which the language, though naturally arranged and according to the strict laws of metre, does not differ from that of prose, there is a numerous class of critics, who, when they stumble upon these prosaisms, as they call them, imagine that they have made a notable discovery, and exult over the poet as over a man ignorant of his own profession. Now these men would establish a canon of criticism which the reader will conclude he must utterly reject, if he wishes to be pleased with these volumes and it would be a most easy task to prove to him that not only the language of a large portion of every good poem, even of the most elevated character, must necessarily, except with reference to the metre, in no respect differ from that of good prose, but likewise that some of the most interesting parts of the best poems will be found to be strictly the language of prose when prose is well written. The truth of this assertion might be demonstrated by innumerable passages from almost all the poetical writings, even of Milton himself. To illustrate the subject in a general manner, I will here adduce a short composition of Gray, who was at the head of those who, by their reasonings, have attempted to widen the space of separation betwixt prose and metrical composition, and was more than any other man curiously elaborate in the structure of his own poetic diction. In vain to me the smiling mornings shine, and reddening Phoebus lifts his golden fire. The birds in vain their amorous descant join, 
where cheerful fields resume their green attire these ears alas for other notes repine italics a different object do these eyes require my lonely anguish melts no heart but mine and in my breast the imperfect joys expire and italics yet morning smiles the busy race to cheer and new-born pleasure brings to happier men the fields to all their wonted tribute bear to warm their little loves the birds complain italics i fruitless mourn to him that cannot hear and weep the more because i weep in vain and italics it will easily be perceived that the only part of this sonnet which is of any value is the lines printed in italics it is equally obvious that except in the rhyme and in the use of the single word fruitless for fruitlessly which is so far a defect the language of these lines does in no respect differ from that of prose by the foregoing quotation it has been shown that the language of prose may yet be well adapted to poetry and it was previously asserted that a large portion of the language of every good poem can in no respect differ from that of good prose we will go further it may be safely affirmed that there neither is nor can be any essential difference between the language of prose and metrical composition we are fond of tracing the resemblance between poetry and painting and accordingly we call them sisters but where shall we find bonds of connection sufficiently strict to typify the affinity betwixt metrical and prose composition they both speak by and to the same organs the bodies in which both of them are clothed may be said to be of the same substance their affections are kindred and almost identical not necessarily differing even in degree poetry sheds no tears quote, such as angels weep end quote, but natural and human tears she can boast of no celestial choir that distinguishes her vital juices from those of prose the same human blood circulates through the veins of them both footnote i here use the word poetry though against my own judgment as opposed to the word prose and synonymous with metrical composition but such confusion has been introduced into criticism by this contradistinction of poetry and prose instead of the more philosophical one of poetry and matter of fact or science the only strict antithesis to prose is metre nor is this in truth a strict antithesis because lines and passages of metre so naturally occur in writing prose that it would be scarcely possible to avoid them even were it desirable End footnote. if it be affirmed that rhyme and metrical arrangement of themselves constitute a distinction which overturns what has just been said on the strict affinity of metrical language with that of prose and paves the way for other artificial distinctions which the mind voluntarily admits i answer that the language of such poetry as is here recommended is as far as is possible a selection of the language really spoken by men that this selection wherever it is made with true taste and feeling will of itself form a distinction far greater than would at first be imagined and will entirely separate the composition from the vulgarity and meanness of ordinary life and if metre be superadded thereto 
I believe that a dissimilitude will be produced altogether sufficient for the gratification of a rational mind. What other distinction would we have? Whence is it to come? And where is it to exist? Not surely where the poet speaks through the mouths of his characters. It cannot be necessary here, either for the elevation of style, or any of its supposed ornaments. For, if the poet's subject be judiciously chosen, it will naturally, and upon fit occasion, lead him to passions the language of which, if selected truly and judiciously, must necessarily be dignified and variegated, and alive with metaphors and figures. I forbear to speak of an incongruity which would shock the intelligent reader, should the poet interweave any foreign splendor of his own with that which the passion naturally suggests. It is sufficient to say that such addition is unnecessary. And surely it is more probable that those passages, which with propriety abound with metaphors and figures, will have their due effect, if, upon other occasions where the passions are of a milder character, the style also be subdued and temperate. But, as the pleasure which I hope to give by the poems now presented to the reader must depend entirely on just notions upon this subject, and, as it is in itself of high importance to our taste and moral feelings, I cannot content myself with these detached remarks, and if, in what I am about to say, it shall appear to some that my labour is unnecessary, and that I am like a man fighting a battle without enemies, such persons may be reminded that, whatever be the language outwardly holden by men, a practical faith in the opinions which I am wishing to establish is almost unknown. If my conclusions are admitted, and carried as far as they must be carried if admitted at all, our judgments concerning the works of the greatest poets, both ancient and modern, will be far different from what they are at present, both when we praise and when we censure. And our moral feelings, influencing and influenced by these judgments, will, I believe, be corrected and purified. Taking up the subject, then, upon general grounds, let me ask, what is meant by the word poet? What is a poet? To whom does he address himself? And what language is to be expected from him? He is a man speaking to men, a man, it is true, endowed with more lively sensibility, more enthusiasm and tenderness, who has a greater knowledge of human nature and a more comprehensive soul than are supposed to be common among mankind, a man pleased with his own passions and volitions, and who rejoices more than other men in the spirit of life that is in him, delighting to contemplate similar volitions and passions as manifested in the goings-on of the universe, and habitually impelled to create them where he does not find them. To these qualities he has added a disposition to be affected more than other men by absent things as if they were present, an ability of conjuring up in himself passions which are indeed far from being the same as those produced by real events, yet, especially in those parts of the general sympathy which are pleasing and delightful, do more nearly resemble the passions produced by real events than anything which, from the motions of their own minds merely, other men are accustomed to feel in themselves. Whence, and from practice, he has acquired a greater readiness and power in expressing what he thinks and feels, 
and especially those thoughts and feelings which, by his own choice, or from the structure of his own mind, arise in him without immediate external excitement. But whatever portion of this faculty we may suppose even the greatest poet to possess, there cannot be a doubt that the language which it shall suggest to him must often, in liveliness and truth, fall short of that which is uttered by men in real life, under the actual pressure of those passions, certain shadows of which the poet thus produces, or feels to be produced, in himself. However exalted a notion we would wish to cherish of the character of a poet, it is obvious that while he describes and imitates passions, his employment is in some degree mechanical, compared with the freedom and power of real and substantial action and suffering. So that it will be the wish of the poet to bring his feelings near to those of the persons whose feelings he describes, nay, for short spaces of time perhaps, to let himself slip into an entire delusion, and even confound and identify his own feelings with theirs, modifying only the language which is thus suggested to him by a consideration that he describes for a particular purpose, that of giving pleasure. Here, then, he will apply the principle of selection which has been already insisted upon. He will depend upon this for removing what would otherwise be painful or disgusting in the passion. He will feel that there is no necessity to trick out or to elevate nature. And, the more industriously he applies this principle, the deeper will be his faith that no words which his fancy or imagination can suggest will be to be compared with those which are the emanations of reality and truth. But it may be said by those who do not object to the general spirit of these remarks, that, as it is impossible for the poet to produce upon all occasions language as exquisitely fitted for the passion as that which the real passion itself suggests, it is proper that he should consider himself as in the situation of a translator, who does not scruple to substitute excellencies of another kind for those which are unattainable by him, and endeavours occasionally to surpass his original, in order to make some amends for the general inferiority to which he feels he must submit. But this would be to encourage idleness and unmanly despair. Further, it is the language of men who speak of what they do not understand who talk of poetry as of a matter of amusement and idle pleasure, who will converse with us as gravely about a taste for poetry, as they express it, as if it were a thing as indifferent as a taste for rope-dancing, or frontignac, or sherry. Aristotle, I have been told, has said that poetry is the most philosophic of all writing. It is so, its object is truth, not individual and local, but general and operative, not standing upon external testimony, but carried alive into the heart by passion, truth which is its own testimony, which gives competence and confidence to the tribunal to which it appeals, and receives them from the same tribunal. Poetry is the image of man and nature, the obstacles which stand in the way of the fidelity of the biographer and historian, and of their consequent utility, are incalculably greater than those which are to be encountered by the poet who comprehends the dignity of his art. The poet writes under one restriction only, 
namely, the necessity of giving immediate pleasure to a human being possessed of that information which may be expected from him, not as a lawyer, a physician, a mariner, an astronomer, or a natural philosopher, but as a man. Except this one restriction, there is no object standing between the poet and the image of things. Between this and the biographer and historian, there are a thousand." nor let this necessity of producing immediate pleasure be considered as a degradation of the poet's art. It is far otherwise. It is an acknowledgment of the beauty of the universe, an acknowledgment the more sincere because not formal but indirect. It is a task light and easy to him who looks at the world in the spirit of love. Further, it is a homage paid to the native and naked dignity of man, to the grand elementary principle of pleasure by which he knows and feels and lives and moves. We have no sympathy but what is propagated by pleasure. I would not be misunderstood, but wherever we sympathize with pain, it will be found that the sympathy is produced and carried on by subtle combinations with pleasure. We have no knowledge, that is, no general principles drawn from the contemplation of particular facts, but what has been built up by pleasure, and exists in us by pleasure alone. The man of science, the chemist, and the mathematician, whatever difficulties and disgusts they may have had to struggle with, know and feel this. However painful may be the objects with which the anatomist's knowledge is connected, he feels that this knowledge is pleasure, and where he has no pleasure he has no knowledge. What then does the poet? He considers man and the objects that surround him as acting and reacting upon each other, so as to produce an infinite complexity of pain and pleasure. He considers man in his own nature and in his ordinary life as contemplating this with a certain quantity of immediate knowledge, with certain convictions, intuitions, and deductions, which from habit acquire the quality of intuitions he considers him as looking upon this complex scene of ideas and sensations, and finding everywhere objects that immediately excite in him sympathies which, from the necessities of his nature, are accompanied by an overbalance of enjoyment. End of section 26